It's time to accelerate. Hey, friends, this is Andy. Welcome to episode 696. That's episode 696 of Accelerate, the sales podcast of record. Well, before we get started, I just want to ask, how's everyone's new sales year? Off to a good start? Well, I have another excellent episode this week to help me help you get things off to a good, strong start. Joining me today is my friend, Anthony Iannarino. Anthony is the author of multiple best-selling books, including his latest one, Eat Their Lunch, Winning Customers Away from Your Competition. Now, I have to warn you, before we get started, we cover a ton of ground in this conversation today. Uh, It maybe runs a little bit longer than the normal episode of Accelerate, because when we get started, we can talk about sales and learning a business forever. So, you know, Anthony is one of the few people I know who reads as much as I do. In fact, he may even read more. And he's going to share with us some great book recommendations. And following up on that, we're talking about the importance of continuous learning if you want to reach the top of the sales game. We're talking especially about reading and why as sellers and sales leaders, you really shouldn't overly focus on sales books. We're touching the value of why you need to combine disparate areas of knowledge, something outside of sales, combine it with your sales knowledge to create something greater. We'll also go into depth on the importance of relationships in sales. I mean, you all know how I feel about this. A huge believer. Anthony is also a big believer in the importance of this. And he's going to share some of his great insights about why he believes people matter more than process. So there's much, much more than that. You definitely want to listen all the way to the end. As I said before, it runs a little bit long. So you might want to listen at 1.5 speed if you're short on time today. Now, before you get to Anthony, I want to take a quick second to talk about the sales house. As you know, the sales house is a personal professional growth program for B2B sellers. Now, as sellers, you know, we don't have a lot of control over many of the things that have an impact on our jobs. You know, the products we sell, the pricing, features, a specific customer set, our territory, customer service, all those things. But what we can control is how we conduct ourselves in front of our buyers. I mean, all those other factors I mentioned, they pale in comparison to how we connect and build rapport with our prospects, how we engage the interest of our buyers, how we build trust and how we deliver value that inspires them to want to do business with us. So that's, that's my focus for you at the sales house is to enable you with the knowledge, the skills, the confidence, and the acumen to become the very best sales version of you. Now, I've been in sales for more than four decades, and I've seen plenty of people pushing empty promises. However, I will tell you, if you invest just 10 minutes a day, of your time in the sales house, 10 minutes a day for an entire year, you'll never worry about hitting quota ever again. So come on in, you're going to get unlimited access to coaching, content, and a community of motivated peers who know that to learn more means to earn more. Come visit us at the sales house, that's the saleshouse.com or the saleshouse.com forward slash join. All right, let's jump into it with my guest today, Anthony Yanarino. Anthony, welcome to the show. It's good to be back. It's great to Not have you. Not my first time here. <laughs> it's been a while. So um, I always love looking at your library behind you, the, even though this is audio for many people. <laughs> I'm looking at Anthony, and behind Anthony, is, he's got his shelves and shelves of books, which uh, always very impressive. Because, I, because I know you've read them. That's the thing. I, I've read um, something close to just over 30% of them. And uh, so the the interesting thing about having a shelf of books behind you is you can tell that a person who has a giant shelf of books like this feels like they're missing something that they need. Mm-hmm. Like I, I'm, I'm still trying to find more things that are useful. You can't see the stack of books that's right here on the desk either, but there's a giant stack of things I'm working through right now. Oh, mine hurt. It, 
all here. Yeah, with a bad back, mine are all on the <laughs> iPod, iPad. So yeah. it's, uh, it's an indication that there's still a lot for me to learn. So I spend all my time trying to be slightly less dumb. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Me too. I mean, that's one I tell people that having done this podcast and nearly 700 episodes is that it's really the most selfish thing I've done in my life because I get to talk and I have spoken with 700 really smart people and I've yeah. learned a ton. Yeah, um, slightly less dumb. Yeah, every day a little less dumb than I was before. So, and I think that's a good aspirational thing for salespeople I talk about is you know, just a little bit smarter every day because it, yeah. it is it is cumulative. Right? It it's, is it's our experiences, the things we learn, you know, something we pick up. We don't know when we pick it up and when we might use it. But then suddenly one day you're in front of a customer and it's like, oh, yeah, I heard this. Maybe I'll try this. It's, I mean, you can't really do lateral thinking you know, and, and start broadening out that way and, unless you have different things that have come in from different places at different times that don't make any sense until they sort of click into place for you. There was a, a guy named John Boyd who was an Air Force colonel, mm-hmm. yeah. and if if in, in his work is ba- basically is called the OODA loop. Right. But one of the things that he used to talk about was you have a lawnmower, you have skis, you have a chair, you know, and you have all these things, you know, and and they they tend to be you know disparate and there's nothing in common about them. But if you put it together, it's a snowmobile, you know, and so that that's the kind of thing where you can't have that idea unless you bring in all kinds of things from different places. So that that's why so many books. Well, I think that's a challenge for sales in general and every profession. Well, you know, we're talking about sales. So is, yeah, how do they keep learning? I mean, obviously podcasts, you know, it's a great way to, to learn. But, you know, I just did a, an assessment for uh, a client of a sales team and asked the question, is what sort of sales training had they had? And this was, Say on average, probably about ten plus years of experience. So a fairly senior sales team across this, you know, twenty, let's say twenty-five people, a little bit under twenty-five. And yet only one or two had ever had any sort of formal sales training. And not not that I think formal sales training is is that valuable necessarily, but I mean I had I've been in sales forty-two years. I had two weeks of sales training my first year on the job. Pretty much it. Um but it brings the question, I've always been like you, a motivated, self-motivated learner, is how do we help the people who, who aren't? Well, training's certainly one choice. And, and I mean, there's, there's a lot to be said for training, but there's a, a lot to detract from that as the starting point. So mm-hmm. training, this is the interesting thing. So I have to come in as your trainer. I've got to give you six major concepts. I've got to give you the strategies, the tactics, the trade-off so you understand when to use what and why to use it and then how to use it. And I'm supposed to get you perfect understanding in an eight-hour day. And then you're supposed to have as the learner, perfect recall and retention and perfect execution for the rest of your life after seeing the concept once. So when you start with that, you realize the ridiculousness of thinking that training by itself is going to be able to make some sort of a transformational change. Because it's not, and it takes more than that. And it's almost, um, you and I have had a long conversation before we hit the record mm-hmm. button, so nobody got to hear any of that. But as people who are lifelong earners, learners, so, you know, it is, it's the cumulative. It's not just my experience. Experience is important for sh- sure. I mean, I would call it situational knowledge. Mm-hmm. You've got knowledge from situations that you can now apply. But at the same time, you have to start continually figuring out 
what else is interesting? What else is useful? What do my clients care about? What what are are some of the challenges that are going on? You know, and and in in the book Eat Their Lunch, there's the mindshare section, and I teach people how to think about what trends are going to impact your client's business. What should they be thinking about? What should they be starting to prepare? Or are they maybe behind in preparing for making the change that they're going to need to make? And the first question I get is, where do you get those insights? <laughs> and I'm like, Google. You go to yeah, Google, Google and you type in 10 trends impacting distribution companies. And you read 10 articles and you try to say, okay, well, these four themes seem to be the biggest drivers. And then you talk to your clients about that and say, tell me how you're dealing with these trends. And they give you information and you share some information with them. And you get a little less dumb from day to day and you go out and continue to learn about business and how to create value for other people and what's going on in the world that you live in. And uh, I, I think it's a lifelong endeavor. And I think the most successful people in any human endeavor are, are perpetual students. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's because they have the emotional intelligence to say, okay, I don't know everything and I want to learn. I mean, it's like the whole Dunning-Kruger effect as, you know, that we've right, right. talked about in the past where people don't know about this. You know, <laughs> Dunning-Kruger, researchers from Cornell, studying, uh, I forget who they studied at the time for the subjects of their study, but basically found this, this syndrome, this phenomenon, this effect they call it, that you know, people overestimate their, their knowledge and lack the emotional intelligence to understand that they don't know as much as they think they do. <laughs> right. And then there's the opposite. So I'm the opposite of that. I'm afraid I don't know things. So I'm I'm horrified. Like, what don't I know? I I need to keep looking because there might be something that's super useful that I haven't come across yet. Oh yeah. And and, and I, I think that one of the studies there that you're referring to, they ask people, are you a better than average driver? Mm-hmm. 90% of people think they're a better than average driver. Well, that's mathematically impossible, impossible, right? <laughs> you can't be, but everybody believes that. And I think it's true for sales too. We, 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 we mistake our experience, our time doing something as uh, uh, some indication of competency. And the person who is the expert on experts, uh, Kay Anders Erickson from, from Florida his, my favorite quote I've ever heard him say was, I think in Fast Company, and he said, I've been walking for 48 years, but I don't feel like I'm getting any better at it. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's it. So just because you've been doing it doesn't mean you're necessarily improving. Yeah, well, I think it's that sort of humility that, that you've talked about here, which is really what it is. It is humility at the end of the day is to say, look, yeah, I don't know everything. And, you know, I'm for me, it's always sort of this paranoia. Like when I talk to clients, it's like they're going to say something. I'm just not prepared to answer. And so, how do I prepare for that? Right. And to your point, experience, reading, what are things that are interesting and exciting happening in their business? What can I learn about what they're doing? And yeah, just being a little paranoid about it. Yeah, I, I like that you've described it as humility because I like being accused of having a virtue. But for me, it's just fear. <laughs> like, there's something I don't know that I need to know. So where am I going to find that? And uh, and I keep reading. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, I had a conversation with someone who was saying that talking about confidence. That's yeah, I'm outwardly very confident, but on the inside, <laughs> right, right. It's like yeah, somebody's going to lay something on me. I'm just not prepared for. You know, a few weeks ago, I. Presented in front of, well, I think the same day you spoke to the Enterprise Sales Forum in Chicago. I was speaking to the one in New York. But we just did an open Q&A the whole time. 
which was you know, sort of a little nerve-wracking you know, going into this because a lot of smart people in the room ask questions about sales. But, uh, you know, through virtue of learning, being open to new experiences, uh, trying to broaden my, my base of knowledge as much as I could, I, was, I think I squeaked by. <laughs> I didn't embarrass myself. But, uh, you know, if I just had been sort of single track my entire career, I wouldn't have been able to do it. Yeah, right. I mean, and that's why I, I think the, the thing about learning is you should be diverse. You know, don't people ask, you know, what, what sales books do you read? Well, I read all of my friends' books. I mean, which is, that's a lot yeah. of books to start out with to begin with. When you write your next book. Yeah. I wrote a four-worker one of your books. I mean, and, yeah. and I'll, read, I'll read that book because you're my friend and we're going to send out a newsletter and tell people to go buy your book. That's, that, that's what we do for each other. But I, I'm mostly... I mean, sitting next to me right here is uh, The Hope Circuit by Marty Seligman about positive psychology mm -hmm. biography. Which I, I bought on your recommendation, by the way. Such a good book. I haven't read Such it yet, but it's, it's, on, it's in my iPad, right? It'll be read. Uh, on, next to that is a book called Like War about how the, all the social channels are impacting uh, things in, in like warfare and other things. On top of that is James Clear's Atomic Habits. Mm -hmm, which I have. And next to that is a book by uh, uh, about Bill Belichick and the football coach. So I think you got to go wide. And then <laughs> my, my strategy is go wide and lots of things and then go deep when you find something that really, really captures your imagination and your attention. Then you go deep and read everything. Yeah, well, and I'm like you. Go wide again. You start go wide again, and then you go deep, and then you go wide again, and all of a sudden you're slightly less dumb. Yeah, well, I, I publish a, a daily email to to my list, sales insights, and every book I read. And I'm like you. I read. I don't. I read the sales books of my friends. Basically, is is about right. right. Um, and otherwise, but you have a lot of friends. To be fair, a lot of friends, but and also a lot of guests on the show. I read all my guest book, but right. Um, <laughs> but yeah, we talked last time you and I spoke, but we were talking about reading the book *Sapiens* by Yuval Harari. Right. I mean, I, it's a book about the yeah short history, brief history of humankind. Is I think subtitle on that. Fascinating book. I love the topic. You know, endlessly fascinated about human evolution, human development, and so on. But yeah, I'm writing about insights from that book in my sales newsletters. Sure. It, it all applies. I've got uh, Robin Dunbar's *Human Evolution* of the same line. Mm -hmm. Uh, another really good one explaining why you can only have 150 relationships and, and how uh, communication and language evolved and how that developed. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the interesting parts on there is, is the fact that social grooming for human beings is so expensive that laughter and comedy may be one of the ways to groom multiple people at the same time. And, and it's developed in, in primates. And so you start reading this thing and it's a, it's a different view on, how we became what it is that we are right now. It's a very yeah. interesting book. Interesting. Laughter and social grooming. I like that. That's, I mean, you're not going to pick that up outside of, you know, somebody like Dunbar's work. So you have <laughs> yeah, to right. go wide. So you bump into those things. Well, and this gets to a point you and I were talking about before we started recording is, is you have to make sure you read things that maybe you don't agree with as well. I mean, I, somebody, somebody wrote me a, <laughs> a very nice guy who gets my <laughs> daily emails and wrote this very long response about how he disagreed. And it was like, love it. <laughs> I mean, that's Good. fantastic. I mean, first of all, I may learn something from you disagreeing with me that I hadn't thought about. So I like that. But just, yeah, read things you don't always agree with. 
Yeah, and I'm not going to let people into our entire conversation that we had before this, but you can't be <laughs> sensitive to ideas that you don't like. I mean, you 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 have to go look at it and say, somebody else thinks that this is valuable. They're finding value. They're producing a result through that idea in some way. So you go look at it and mm-hmm. you say, does it have application? You know, and, and I've studied Ken Wilber's work, Integral Theory, for a long enough time to know that no one is capable of 100% error. No one. So everybody has a partial truth in something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if you can see the partial truth and then say, okay, I see where the application of this makes sense, then you're starting to open yourself up to new choices. Well, and that's valuable, though, is the inverse is true as well. No one can be 100%, 100% right. Nobody has 100% of the truth either. Right. That's true. That's right. <laughs> so as long as you're aware of that, and then you have a sense of, well, I want to fill that gap, just know that that's a lifelong pursuit, right? I mean, you're never going to... You, your life's not going to be that long. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, given, the, given that the, uh, the state of knowledge changes so rapidly. Yes. By definition, you would never catch up. Um, so tell us a little bit about the new book, because I want to make sure we, we have time on that here. Um, the, the new book, uh, Eat Their Lunch, is, uh, was originally titled The Competitive Displacement Playbook. And so this is stuff that people may not know as an author you don't generally get to name your own book. Uh, so when you go to a publisher, they tend to have strong feelings, and especially my publisher, they have very strong feelings about titles. Yeah. The, fir- the first book I wrote was called 17 Elements, and they're like, yeah, we hate that. Uh, and then it was called <laughs> The Only Sales Guide You'll Ever Need. Even though it was a competency model, they're like, nope, we, we're not going to put that book out. And then the second book was called The Art of Commitment Gaining, and it ended up with the title The Lost Art of Closing. Right. And close, but not quite the same. This book had the most generic title of all titles. It was called The Competitive Displacement Playbook because what I was trying to write was a playbook for competitively displacing your competitor inside your dream clients. That's what I was writing. Mm -hmm. And Nikki Papadopoulos, who is the head of the editorial staff at Portfolio, was at lunch and they were talking about books. And she said, the book is called Eat Their Lunch. And then... The, the romance with Portfolio ended, I know, because they never asked what I thought about the title. I just got a note saying, this is going up on Amazon on Monday. Right. And if you have any changes to the the summary, let us know uh, immediately. And and when I saw it, I smiled. And uh, as soon as anybody sees the cover with the lunch bag being taken in the title, they smile. Yeah, that's but, a, it's a better title. FYI. <laughs> <laughs> well, I knew you weren't going to spare my feelings. Yeah, I, yeah. I, we just got talked about not being sensitive to ideas that right. you don't like. But yeah, it is a really good title and <laughs> yeah. far better than mine. Yeah. That's why they do some of the naming there because that, that happens. But I, there hasn't been a book written about the fact that this is a competition. It's a zero-sum game. For most of us, we don't swim in a blue ocean. You know, we sw- I love the idea of the blue ocean strategy. Mm. It's great. Be Netflix, be Airbnb, come up with something that's going to be Brand difficult. new market, right? Yeah, try it. But what about the 18 million people that are in sales right now who don't have the opportunity to go and, and create some sort of compelling differentiation that makes a new market where you're actually going to be able to sustain that without having to work hard and without the salesmanship necessary for a competitive displacement. Since there was a gap, and I spent most of my time working on this you know, over the course of a lifetime, it's really all I've ever done. I've never had a lead. I've, I've never had anybody generate leads for me or give me lists. All I've ever had was a list of targets. Mm-hmm. 
of people who I knew I wanted that I had to go get somebody out of my seat and take that from them. So it's what I knew. And it's what I've been leading to with the first two books was trying to get to this point where I could start sharing the concepts in this book to say, if you can be somebody worth buying from and you know how to control the process and create value for other people and help them make change, then you can go and make the most significant change, which is I have to remove somebody you've done business with for 10 years to come in and give you the better future that you're going to need right now. And, and that's the book that I wrote. Yeah, I mean, I, I looked at it even a little more broadly, though, because I think that, that there's a tendency on some people, and they might read the, the title, is to think, okay, well, I'm just trying to displace you know, a, a competitor, an existing competitor. But the fact is, any sales situation you go in, I think almost any, short of the blue ocean side, there's an existing solution. And right. you're, having, you're, having oh, to, yeah. you're having to displace that existing solution. It could be the status quo. But I mean, I've it, never never gone into a place where I'm right. advocating for change, where I'm not displacing some way some, of doing business. And, and, so and even more than that, you know, you you get a limit to the number of pages you can put in a book. But there's another uh, there's another cu- couple chapters. I have to also displace what you think your priorities are right now. You know, so yes. when you walk in, so I'm also displacing. This is my number one and number two. The idea that you come in as number eight. How do you move up that list? That's exactly. another. That's a whole different conversation, but you're right. You're displacing something. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, and I think, you know, given the high rate of no decisions that people get in their pipeline, some of it's just bad salesmanship, if I can say that. But the other is, yeah, just didn't give them a compelling reason to buy. It didn't create the value yeah. for them to say, look, you should be making the change. It's worth changing. Yeah. And, and there's switching costs. And I think we underestimate switching costs. And I think we underestimate how difficult it is inside companies to get consensus. I mean, I think it's very difficult. You have a lot of competing interests and almost the more people that get piled into the process, the more competing interests you have. And it's mm-hmm. easier to say, we all still have to work together, so let's do nothing. Let, we'll just kick this down the road and we'll look at it later on rather than having to have these difficult conversations that you know Andy or Anthony comes in and tells us we have to have. You know, like we, we agree, it's true, but getting it done is really hard and do we have the bandwidth and do we really want these people to be unhappy for the next two years? You know, there's a lot, it's complicated. Human beings are complicated. Well, yeah, which I think is, is underappreciated by many, many sellers uh, <laughs> because yeah, you go in those organizations that, that we see and people think I pick on the SaaS industry. I don't mean to pick on them, but you know, you have these completely sort of uh, metric driven sales processes that, don't allow for the fact that you're really dealing with a human on the other side, right? Because as long as we know we can do X amount of activity and we generate X amount of or Y amount of prospects or lead, or excuse me, orders, you know, a lot of companies are just satisfied to do that. But, right? But if, to, if I do 100 you, things and I get five orders, if I want double, I do 200 things, I get 10 orders, as right. opposed to how can I do a better job of creating value for those that I'm actually engaging with so I can close 10 out of 100 instead of five? So you're you're criticizing um, the SaaS industry from a place of love and a place where I'm trying to help and be and be mm-hmm. useful, giving you some better thinking. So that that's the first thing I'll say. The second thing is, a lot of what comes out of Silicon Valley uh, denies the interior of human beings, like their values, their beliefs, their cultural uh, mm-hmm. issue, things like that. It, and it's mostly they're they're mostly behaving as scientific materialists. So. You know, I, I can objectively measure that I get a hundred, <laughs> and if I do a hundred, I get five. So now I have this objective measurement. So with called no science, subject- though. 
but that that's their view is is yeah it's, right so that's their it's, view and it's then, math <laughs> and yeah it's math and 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 the truth of the matter is is that uh, i go with neil degrasse tyson on this who says as soon as human beings enter any endeavor it immediately goes nonlinear and this is why physics is easy and sociology is hard mm-hmm. and 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 that's it so the the physics <laughs> part of it's really easy bits and bytes and numbers and math math tends to work mm-hmm. but even that is is to deny the fact that we're dealing with people's beliefs their fears uh the things that they want the struggles that they're having internally consensus building all of these other very very human things and for me and i wrote it at the end of the book i think the more people go towards transactional behavior and beliefs the more that being a human and and being super relational is going to tilt the playing field deeply in your direction you're going to be running downhill Mm -hmm. because the human part of it's what still matters more than anything else. I agree. And I've, I've written about this as well and, and talk about it as is huge believer that as we get more technology into selling, as we get more AI handling bits and pieces of it, that yeah, the ability to be human is your differentiation. And I just like it when people say AI, cause I always believe they're talking about me. Like we need, we need more AI. <laughs> we in, need in more. Well, of course process. we need more we AI, like right? I like it. <laughs> You're going to have your next book. You'll have to play on that uh, more specifically. <laughs> AI in sales. And yeah, I, I like I, it. Yeah, I don't mean artificial intelligence. We, um, we should let AI manage our entire sales process. I, there we perfect. go. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it, you're absolutely right. I mean, this, and you talk about throughout the book, you talk about the value of the relationship. And it's funny, you know, the early 2018, there were people you and I both know. Uh, Talking seriously, semi-seriously about you know the value, the lack of value of relationships and sales, mm-hmm. which I couldn't have disagreed with more strongly, and and said so at the time. Where's that come from? Why? Why? In your opinion, where does it come from? I I I think right now, for some reason, and particularly on LinkedIn, for some reason, mm. there, there tends to be the statement of an idea as fact that excludes any other idea from being able to exist in the same space. So you can either be likable or you can be competent, but you can't be both. So you you can be really smart and have great ideas and challenge people, or you can have good relationships with people where, where you have trust and caring and being known, liked, and, and trusted uh, still matter. And every time I see this, I think... The person that when you see an idea that's displayed in those terms, take the word or out and throw it away and just put and because Mm -hmm. you should be super competent and super smart and able to challenge someone's view, which I call mind share, shifting the lens that they're looking at the world through. And you should be somebody that they actually want to do business with. Those two ideas are not mutually exclusive. But I think some of the conceit here that you see in LinkedIn is because I'm not likable then I'm going to say that it doesn't have to be important. And, and the mistake that's being made there is the detriment is not being a likable person. Being likable is super helpful. Mm-hmm. And look, if, if we're being honest, if you're super attractive, you've got great charisma, you're super likable, your rapport skills are probably faster than everybody else's because that's the unfair way that the world happens to be right. structured. But, but what they're really saying, I think, is that the desperate need to be liked the part of you that says, 
I'm afraid of telling the truth to this client because I'm afraid they're not going to like me. That is a detriment to sales for sure. Mm -hmm. But, but it would be better to have the relationship than not have the relationship. And I hear from salespeople and I imagine you do too, where they think, how do I displace that competitor when they've had a relationship with this person and they want to keep the relationship with that person and they won't let them go, even though I have the better product. Yeah. That's because they have the relationship Mm -hmm. and relationships are hard to unwind. And even when you have the right solution, it doesn't always matter. But you Uh want both. You want the relationship and you want the insight and you want the ability to create greater value. You want all of those things. And the intangibles count. And I imagine you agree with me here, but I think the intangibles count for more than the tangibles in most cases. And they're hard to measure and hard to teach and hard to train. So we pretend like they're not what matters. We go, no, Andy, we need a really good process. But you're giving the process to someone who has terrible intangibles. Right. Yeah, I just wrote about this last week. Process doesn't win deals. People do. Um, Right. And because I was reacting to something. I had read an article. Actually, the article was a little old and and maybe a couple years old. But it it stated, you know, if I'm a salesperson and I don't have a process to tell me when it's time to close a deal, what am I going to (laughs) do? I'm like, what are you talking about? You need a process to tell you when it's time to close? I mean, if you have a relationship with the person, they're going to tell you when it's time to close. You, you're you not going to have tr- trouble figuring that out no. if you're paying attention. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, And I think that gets back to this. People just misunderstand this idea of relationship. People automatically gravitate to this idea that you have to be friends with someone. And you use the term likable. I think that's really the critical term. I always talk about you want your prospects at a, at a minimum, they need to be positively neutral about you. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. I, I would I would like them leaning towards I very much would like to work with this person. Yeah. But I mean but, they don't I, they don't I, like want to go out and have a drink with me necessarily. That's fine. But you don't want them to say like uh, he's really smart, but I can't imagine having to work with him. <laughs> that, that that's not good. You know, they're, they're making a decision as to who they're going to have as a, re- a relationship whether you want the relationship or not. The nature of the relationship can still yet to be defined, but the fact of the matter is, if I have to work with you and I have to sit down and deal with you, and you're a difficult personality and you're really smart, I can find somebody really smart who's not a difficult personality. And so I'll the conceit that people who write this way is that they think, well, if you're smart, then you don't have to also be a, a, a person that's good and easy to work with. Well. That would be true if there weren't people that had both of those assets. So again, it's and, you know, it's not mutually exclusive. You should work on developing all of these things. Yeah, well, I think I the, a, whole, the, a whole third of the book is intangibles because they matter so much. Yeah, I shouldn't say this because people think we set this up this way, but yeah, I hundred percent agree. It's and that's what what I've written about, and this is what I believe. This is how I came through my career. Is I. I had no background in what I sold. Um, you know, I was always selling over my head to some degree. I was in complex technology fields, and I had no technical training. I was a smart guy. I learned as much as I could about it. I was for a lay person, I was smart. But but what got me in the door and got the the conversation started was was relationship skills. Right. It still matter. Still matter. Will matter more in the future, in my estimation. Oh, I agree. I agree. Uh, Jeffrey Colvin wrote about. Have you read his book? Humans are underrated. No, I haven't read it. Yeah, you enjoy it because he talks about it specifically and talks about the research that's been done in that regard. Is they sort of people are coming to the conclusion is the ability to form a human relationship with another person will become one of the critical skills in the twenty first century. 
What, well, you're reading the same kind of stuff I read. So when you when you read something like Sapiens or, or Homo Deus, the second you know uh, one of, of his books, and you read Robin Dunbar, and you start looking at wh- when people are looking forward at technology, I'm looking backwards to say what are the principles that haven't changed mm-hmm. for six thousand years, or if you want to go maybe for a million and a half years, what hasn't changed. And, and social groomings, the cost of relationships, the management of relationships, the the survival of groups of people who produce better results than other competing groups because of cooperation and collaboration mm-hmm. and all of these kinds of concepts. When you start looking at that, you have to say, the reason that we got this far is because some principles that are far greater than a technology. Okay, so the technology counts for a lot. Mm-hmm. Fine. But but what are the things that are not going to change and maybe more pronounced? And, right. and I think the, those are the areas where you put your focus. Right. And 20 years of rapid technological evolution isn't going to change those. It doesn't change those. No, but I mean, there are people that are in this field in sales. You may be one that's listening to this and watching this. Is that, <clears throat> yeah, the way people are gathering information has changed dramatically. We're all aware of that. But... No one has said suddenly the value of relationships has has changed. You know, one of the things some of the disconnect we're seeing in in certain elements of our society is that uh, people aren't paying attention to some of these fundamentals the way that they need to, and we'll see people coming back to them. I continue to tell young people sexting isn't going to replace actual sex. I'm 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 very confident in this bet that I'm making. <laughs> I'm I'm very long human behaviors that are three and a half million years old. Yeah, well, I even. To your point about 6,000 years old, right? I mean, sort of yeah. back to <laughs> sort of the start of established uh, societies and so on is, yeah. You know, you think about it. Somebody said, oh, yeah. Somebody's having this conversation with me last week about millennials make decisions so much differently. So when they're buyers, you know, it's going to be completely different. And I'm saying, well, no, it's not, right? Because, you know, they're not going to want to necessarily buy. Th- my opinion is they're not going to feel comfortable buying from uh text message as someone might think, you know, just use an extreme example, is if you have a, a career at stake, you have a job at stake, you have an outcome at stake in your business, you're going to know the people you're you're doing business with. And it's not going to be a superficial relationship. You want to really understand them. The mistake that they're making, and I think that the the market, the economy is being pulled in two very, very different directions. And one is super transactional. I have a great relationship with Amazon. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know Me a single too. person there. I don't have a single, I, I know no one there. But because uh, getting uh, this book, you know, sent to me, this book, I can have this book sent to me. It's the same book I'm going to get at the bookstore, except mm-hmm. I don't have to go to the bookstore to get it. So I can get that book shipped here. This is a um, $17 decision that I'm making. Right. That's fine. Uh, I'm also buying a house. Okay. So that's a significantly bigger decision. And I'm probably going to get some help to have somebody tell me what the house is really worth. Tell me areas in the house that I may need to look at as I make a decision as to whether or not to buy it. I'm going to get some help on somebody who knows a lot more than I do. And so they think everything is going transactional. So the SaaS companies and scientific materialists, people who think that you know love is a serotonin drip and you know there's mm-hmm. no actual real emotional thing going on, they, they, they think that everything is going to be transactional in the future. But it's not. And so there are, are decisions that we make that require a super relational relationship where if I'm going to spend $3 million to transform my business, 
I'm going to get somebody really smart who knows how to do this work, who's done it before, who has a set of experiences I don't have, who understands things and has seen things and understands the trade-offs that one person might make that gets a better result than another group. Mm-hmm. You're, you're going to rely on that. And that, that has been true. And you know, I've tried to make this point. The concept of trusted advisor, go to the Bible. Go to the Bible and look. I mean, the, the pharaohs had smart people around them to shore up their weaknesses in, in areas that they didn't know. I mean, and this has been through all of history, leaders have found people who said, fill the gap for me, whether it's an oracle in Greece, you know, or a pharaoh or uh, a business leader mm-hmm. or, or Don Corleone with Tom Hayden and the Godfather. I mean, take, take <laughs> your pick. There's, there's never been... One. You like the last one. Yeah. The, there, there's never been uh, a time when you didn't need somebody to come in and help you understand the strategic outcomes that you're trying to get to give you different views and to give you better insight. That's just not going to change for millennials either. We, we all are going to want to take care of our kids, get married, find a, a partner, you know, build a life together. Mm-hmm. All those things tend to be universal. It's interesting because as somebody who gets to travel around the world and speak to people, we're very much alike everywhere I go, even though we will point out the small differences. Everyone's very much, very much alike. Yeah, and I think this whole idea with, with making decisions is that what you don't eliminate, as you talked about, you, know, you address sort of tangentially is with your $3 million decision, there's more risk. Right. And once you start, Huge risk. Right. And so once risk is injected into a situation, one of the reasons people want to talk to other humans when they're making decisions about that is... Yeah, they want some valid external validation. As you said, they want somebody to fill in the gaps. You know, they're, they're they're mitigating risk. They want certainty. Yeah, and so that comes from not necessarily from a white paper that you're delivering, but <laughs> <laughs> but it could to some degree. It will help. It's not like you. There's no value there. But at the end of the day, it's the humans. You know, I, when good. I was talking to the the uh, New York City Enterprise Sales Forum, is is I raised my hand. I said, okay, well, show me a show of hands. I said. If you're, you know, most of them are SaaS companies, if your annual contract value is over, or lifetime contract value, excuse, excuse me, it was over $100,000. You know, a bunch of people raised hand. I said, okay. So how many of you travel to see a prospect to close a deal? Virtually none of them. And I said, that's interesting. You say $100,000 deal, you can't afford a $350 plane ticket to go close the order. I said, because if I was competing against you, I'd be on the plane, and I'd win. You'd win a hundred percent of those deals. You'd, you'd win. There'd be no contest. I, no I had contest. a client. I had a client who said to me, "I had a meeting, and he said uh, you didn't have to come all the way here to see me." And I said, "I know. I just wanted to." Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that that that's the difference. Is you think that the physical presence doesn't matter, and it does. And uh, the physical presence means that you care more. It's proof that you care more because you got on a plane and came all this way to see me. And, yeah. and, and I think we, uh, we, we still, I think, I don't know what you're going to call this podcast. Like it's the human stupid <laughs> or something. It's the human. You have to pay yeah, that's the to title, the title of my next book. <laughs> it's the human stupid. Yeah. yeah. That's I'll buy that book. All right. Uh, that, that is, I mean, that, that's what it is. So you underestimate the fact of just your physical presence showing up there to say, I care enough about you to sit down and really understand what you need. Well, how could that not create a preference for you? And and selling is about conversations. It's about commitments. But in large part, it's about creating a preference to buy from you instead of someone else. Well, how do you create that preference? Well, 
I don't want to spend $350 on on $100,000 lifetime value with a 62% net margin. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Oh, so you're not good at math either. Right. You're not good at humans and you can't do math. <laughs> <laughs> like this is the easiest decision on earth. If I told you for $350, you could get this $100,000 client with greater certainty, you're like, I'm making that bet for three fifty. That's a simple bet, right? Yeah, it's it continues to amaze me. I mean, it's just the math. I said is so simple, and we're talking about math, right? Because we're, we're actually we're talking winning. about arithmetic. We're not even really talking <laughs> about math. This isn't you That's know this true. isn't uh, any kind of algebraic equation. No, we're no, doing. no, not doing quadratic <laughs> equations, right? Thank God, right? That's why I went into sales, so I wouldn't have to do that stuff. <laughs> we just have to add, <laughs> add and subtract. That's all we have to worry about. <laughs> Multiply too. That. That's Multiplies good. good. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, it's funny. I think even, and you raised the point earlier, is, is I think people understand too, is it's not just people you're selling to. I mean, it's this goes back to the relationships in general. When you know, If you're building a career, if you're building uh, yourself, uh, I had this conversation with my son, who's my partner on the sales house, and you know, he's a, a millennial and you know, really extremely smart kid. But we're talking about engaging with us vendor to be a strategic vendor for us. And um, I, you know, we sort of narrowed down the pool. I said, well, if, yeah, if we decide he's the one, let's get on a plane, let's go see him. Or fly him out to see us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so sort of the first words out of his mouth was, well, it's kind of old school. <laughs> it's like, no, oh, this is this is how you cement things. Right. This is that that's not old school. That's school. It's school, right. That's just school. Yeah. Right. The, the, that's what that is. But it's just important. You're going to build these relationships that are important for what you're doing and important to your success in life or in you know in business. Invest in the time with the, with that person. I mean, not all of them are merit that, right? Right. But those and that not do, all not all of them turn out to be the relationship that you want or need or hope for. But the ones that do matter more than anything. And I mean, I remember uh, me, you, Mark Hunter, Mike Weinberg. Uh, sitting at a restaurant, how many years ago? <laughs> in Chicago, right? Um, in Chicago, five, maybe six, more, seven. maybe six. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And and uh, I mean, first, I, first time we had met Gibson Steakhouse. I, I remember where. Yeah, and, uh, on Rush Street or something. Yeah, right over there. Yeah, we we. I mean that that was this little group. We got together in Chicago and we had 21 uh, of us show up to get to be in a room together, mm-hmm. you know, and, uh, and those relationships still exist, which, you know, the, the ex- explains the value of the relationship. No, absolutely. Yeah. It's the first time I met you. First time I met Weinberg, Mark. Actually, I think I've seen Mark in person subsequent to that. I still think so. I don't have seen you and Weinberg in person. <laughs> Is it? Yeah. Gosh, it doesn't feel like that to me. Oh, I know. Because well, of this, I think. Yeah, because of this. So, the power of, of video. Uh, well, one question I was going to ask is, is, and it sort of relates a little bit to what we're talking about, but um, Jeb Blunt, who wrote the, the forward to your book, had a very strong statement in there, which was that um, the sales profession has gotten soft. Mm-hmm. So he said you're in violent agreement with that. So, <laughs> so what uh, what was meant by that, and and why do you think that is? I I, I think it's this reaction to Glengarry Glenn Ross and that stereotype. So mm-hmm. if, if if closing is bad, 
then not asking for a commitment at all is good. And, and if interrupting people is bad, then you have to just wait and connect with people on LinkedIn and try to share things until somebody reaches out to you. Mm. If, if being liked is something that you want, not, not likable or not even just having a relationship, but if you can't say anything that makes the customer unhappy because the buyer has all of the power in the relationship, you know, and I read uh, all these things go by on LinkedIn. The buyer has all the power in the relationship. There's nothing you can do to create value for them. You just serve them when they make requests for information. And I'm looking at it going, you have a very, very different idea about this profession than I do. Mm. And, and, and so it's gotten so soft. Like you can't interrupt anybody. You have to wait until they engage with you. And the customer will tell you when they want to take the next step. Well, how the hell do they know what the next step is? So just just think about this for a minute. So it's an ERP. Let's just say ERP, the most complicated sure. thing I can think of. So it, it's a, a root canal, a colonoscopy, a brain surgery. Oh, I've, I've bought it. And, and, and I've been on a committee buying it. Yeah. yeah. So quadruple bypass at the same time, right? It's the worst thing you could ever have to do. How many times does the buyer do that in their life? Uh, probably twice, but they hope only once, right? You never you never want to have to rip mm -hmm. everything out of mm -hmm. uh, the guts of the business and start over again. How many times does the company that sells ERP do this? Every single day of their life. Every single day of their life, this is all they do is help people with an enterprise resource planning software solution. That's all they do. So who should know how that conversation needs to go and what the client needs to do to get from their current state to a future state? Should the client who has almost no experience or the experience of one company maybe a few times or somebody who does it every single day of their life, surrounded by a uh, hundred or a thousand or twelve thousand other individuals that only do that, mm -hmm. you know. And so I, I don't understand the idea. And I think what they're doing is telling salespeople they have to be way softer than they have to be. Like, you can't interrupt people. You know, you have interrupt to interrupt them, them like make, what, making a call, a cold call, making, or something, or, or, or interrupt their thinking by right. telling them that what they're doing isn't right. They've right. got their own buying committee. And they're 57% through the process before they ever get to you. It's like, well, if they're 57, what, what process? And so this, this is, we're going to go back to linearity for just a minute, but how can there be a buying process? There's 14 people sitting there. There's not. So there's at least 14 buying processes. Mm -hmm. And I would say when there's 14 people in a room, there's 27 buying processes going on, you know, because they're conflicted themselves. Each individual has conflict. Like, yep. I'm not sure this is the right thing. So how do you pretend that everything that we do in sales, back to one of your small criticisms made with love about the SaaS company, you have a slide deck and it, the, the process starts on the left and it ends on the right and it goes specifically A, B, C, D, all the way to Z and it ends right there. Really? You've never worked with human beings because it goes A, B, C, B. No, really? B again? Yeah, yeah. B again. We may do A again. B, I'm down at F. I'm ready to buy right now. No, we're not to F. You got to come back here. And, you know, it just doesn't work this way. And you have to be the person that understands how to create value for other people. It's your job to be the trusted advisor. So you have to have the advice. And then the second thing is, is the people say, I want to be consultative. Or if they pronounce it the other way, they want to be consultative. Either way, I, I, I get what they're saying. <laughs> but a consultant comes in and tells you, I'm going to give you the advice on how best to get the results you want for your business right now. That's what a consultant does. A consultant doesn't come in and say, listen, tell me what you think comes next and I'll see yeah. what we can do to help you. A consultant comes in and says, this is what comes next and here's why. 
and let me help you get the result that you're really looking for. And so you tell people they can't dispense with their advice except for in a blog post on LinkedIn. Incorrect. Mm. Incorrect. That, that you need to be sitting face to face with people. You need to interrupt them. You need to share new ideas that challenge their thinking. I mean, th- it's complicated, but th- I think it's too soft. I think we've gotten too soft. I'm not saying go back to Glengarry Glenn Ross. I mean, that, that always be closing when closing means telling them that they had to skip the whole process and just buy makes no sense at all. I wrote a whole book about this. Right. But knowing what comes next and helping people do it even when they don't want to. The, the chapter that the publisher didn't want to put in The Lost Art of Closing was chapter 15, Fearing the Wrong Danger. The client feels the wrong danger. Mm-hmm. They think, well, changing is going to be difficult and I'm afraid that something's going to happen. Well, not changing is more difficult. And we don't want to have the difficult conversation because we don't want them to say, uh, I don't like what you're saying and I don't want to do business with you because I don't like what you're saying. But if you've ever had a great relationship with a client, they didn't like what you were saying at the beginning, more than likely. Like, I don't want to do this. My gosh, I mean, it's so much work, but I know it's the right thing to do. And then you help them do that. Yeah, and I, I totally agree. I mean, it's, it's I wonder, and, and part of my belief is that I wouldn't have necessarily used the word soft, but I, th- I think that that part of the what's happening is that, again, there's this, Propaganda campaign, if you will, that says, look, <laughs> sales is this linear transactional thing, even in complex environments. And if you just do a certain amount of activities, you're going to get a certain result, which is generally true, right? You know, if, you, if you do a large enough universe of sample sizes, you know, enough samples, you're going to get a certain result that you want a certain number of times. And then what they do is this, you know, they, they multiply what's at the top of the funnel, Instead of really focusing on what's in the bottom, but that is attractive to people because they know. Look, it's just if I just do a certain number of things, a certain number of outcomes are going to exist. And so you just scale up by by multiplying the number, <laughs> right? And yeah, and so it's it's the mistake of it, it, it's the mistake of taking efficiency and believing efficiency is effectiveness. Yeah. And, and 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 they're different. You can be really really efficient. And get a very poor result, which is what most of us do when we send a, a newsletter pitch out. I'm, I'm saying 80,000 people are going to resonate with the, this exact message. Mm. No, 2,000 of them are. Right. I mean, that's it. But ra- rather than saying, I need to change the message to improve it to get that 2,000 to 3,000, I'm just going to send another email. <laughs> okay, well, they already didn't like that email. Mm-hmm. And you're sending it again to the same group of people. But that's basically what we do. And so when people... You know, in the in the book Eat Their Lunch, I go back over a script saying, Andy, I'd love to share with you an executive briefing on the four trends that are probably going to have the biggest impact on your podcast over the next 18 to 24 months. I'm going to share with you some of the things that Google's done, some things that are going on in SEO. And listen, I'm going to leave you with a deck at the end of this call. And you're probably going to make some decisions to do some things different. And whether there's a next step for me or not, uh, I promise you're going to sit down with your team and probably have some serious conversations about how you're going to adjust to these. And I'll share some ideas with you. What do you look like Thursday for a 20-minute executive briefing? Mm-hmm. What I'm trying to do is trade enough value for you to say, that's interesting to me. I'd like to know what those things are. Mm-hmm. But people still say, Andy, it's Anthony, and uh, I help people with podcasts like yours. I'd love to stop by, introduce myself, tell you about my company, and love to learn a little bit more about you. What do you look like Thursday for a meeting? But what does meeting mean? Is that an hour? 
Am I going to have to throw you out of my office because you won't leave and you're going to spend the first half hour trying to develop rapport with me by telling me your kids play soccer like my kids? You know, I, it, the, the trade of value is too low. Well, and also, and, most people wouldn't have suggested a specific time to have a call anyway. So it would have just been, what do you look like over the next few weeks? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a little broad. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I'm busy washing my hair most of that time. <laughs> Or at least my eyebrows, but well, yeah, the, they 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 get look at this and they think, well, the you know the the thing that I did last week, they it's not the call that doesn't work, it's the language choice that you make. So you can make more calls if you want to, but if you want to improve the ratio of yeses you get, then you have to improve the value that you're trading for that meeting, because when you get a no to a meeting request, what somebody is telling you is. I did not hear enough value in that offer for me to accept it and trade my time for it. So double down and and call more numbers and call faster and call harder if you want to. But to improve the effectiveness, I have to change the message to something that they say that's value I would trade for. And and that that's a very different a, a different view of things than somebody who believes just go harder faster. Right. I think this is <laughs> this is I'm seeing a trend already, you know, this Love affair with sort of this, you know, heavily rigid process conformity. You know, to conformity is what I call it. I find it interesting that again in the SaaS business, where you know these these companies were created to disrupt markets, and yet they yeah. use, they use yeah. these sales processes that are based on conformity and rigidness and so on. But rigidity, excuse me, but um, compliance. Um, I think that's changing. You know, I think that that bit by bit we're seeing companies that are saying. Yeah, this isn't really scalable the way we're trying to do it. But but reality doesn't really care what your theory is. And it really doesn't care about your feelings or your opinions. So at some point, you can double down and double down and double down again. And then at some point, realize like, wait a second, the reality here is that this isn't working. It's not improving things. Now I have to start looking elsewhere. But it can take people a, a longer period of time than you imagine to stick with their beliefs and yeah. And cling to their view that this is a repeatable process, that all I have to do is turn the volume up on this to create greater sales, which doesn't tend to be true. No, but it's, as you might expect on this podcast, I've talked to a lot of senior executives from those type of companies that practice that particular sales process. And I would say the vast majority of them aren't thinking about, yeah, how do I, how do I change this close rate from one out of every five you know, from twenty percent to twenty-one percent this year, twenty-two, twenty-three. No, it's I've got a model that works. I know how to harvest X percent of the things that come at the top of the funnel. Let's just put more in the top. I get the LinkedIn pitch every day about people who want to do lead generation for me. <laughs> I get three with, a day. Did, you only get one a day. With, I get three. <laughs> yeah, with digital with digital marketing, and right. I just think to myself. So the right way to get leads in today's day and age is to have digital marketing and to build a funnel that attracts people into it. But the person who tells me they're the greatest expert at doing this sends LinkedIn pitches mm-hmm. instead of using the same tactic that they're telling me I should be using. Right. Why do you not have a digital funnel of people begging you to help them do what you're doing to get them into your funnel? Why are you on LinkedIn? Mm-hmm. But, but again, it's, it must work just enough, just enough that they actually believe it's a viable strategy. I think that's the... So I've, been, I've been offered sales training uh, a half a dozen times in the last two weeks. Yeah, I've, I haven't had, I've had maybe one on the sales training. I, 
always amazes me. People obviously aren't looking at my profile. They're on LinkedIn and they're not looking on my profile. Why would I want sales training? I mean, why would I want sales training? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to take sales training, but the kind of person that would reach out to me on LinkedIn to offer me sales training is maybe not the person that I would buy it from personally, because that's a person who didn't even look at my profile. Yeah. Yeah. The point is make it sale. All right, Anthony, we could go on forever. I think we have. We could. <laughs> I think we have almost. Forever um, is here. Forever is here. Well, it's clear that I miss you then. Yeah. We'll do this uh, more frequently. Talk to. Yes. Agreed. So, uh, Tell people they can find out more about your excellent new book. Eat Their Lunch. and You can get it on Amazon.com. If you buy it in bulk, you'll want to do that at 800 CEO Read because they're going to have the best price and they're the best book people on earth. So go to 800 CEO Read for that. Uh, you can also find out at eattheirlunchbook.com. And uh, there's there's a website there with some, some more information about the book and uh, the ability to get some training videos and a workbook. Excellent. So who had the URL of for uh, Eat Their Lunch? Somebody has eattheirlunch.com, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I was wondering uh, who it was. I'll have to look that up. I, I would like that. It's it's really interesting how that works, too. The first book that I almost named 17 Elements, I tried to buy 17elements.com. And uh, I couldn't get that. And then I tried 17E. Do you know what a three, uh, uh, three spaces, like E, what was it? 17E. So two digits and a letter.com. Those started about $35,000. Oh. And, and I, I tried to buy it and they sent me a note telling me it's 35,000. I said, I'll, I'll give you some number far less than that. Yeah. And, and they said, no way, basically go to hell. And uh, hmm. two years later, they're like, do you still want 17 E? And I'm like, I didn't even name the book that. So now I told you it was worth a certain amount to me when you had the chance to do it, but you said, no, sorry about that. Yeah, so it's too late. someday somebody's going to want to say like, Hey, you know, you should buy etherlunch.com, but that ship has sailed. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I've got good stories to about that too. Good to see you as well. And uh, yeah, good luck on the book. And we'll look forward to talking on shortly. Okay. See you soon. All right. Thanks. Okay, friends, that was Accelerate for the week. First of all, as always, I want to thank you for joining me. And I want to thank my guest, Anthony Anarino. Uh, join me again next week as I welcome Matt Suggs to the show. Matt is the Executive Vice President of Mediafly. And we're going to be talking about how to provide interactive buying experiences to help you win more deals. A lot of focus these days on the buying experience, the customer experience. We're talking all about that. Be sure to join us then. Before you go, don't forget to check out The Sales House, the all-in-one sales learning, coaching, mentoring, and growth program for B2B sellers. Visit thesaleshouse.com. I look forward to seeing you there. So thanks again for joining me. Until next week, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.